I know you saw that last week, and I wanted to run it again because you can't see that type of overview enough to kind of get a grasp. And then some of you are here for the first time, and so wanted you to kind of get an overview of judges. Last week, just did a lot of background material. Couple of things, just for housekeeping. This is being recorded on audio. It's not recorded on video. And James had a fabulous suggestion. James says, if you'll all give $10,000 tonight, we'll have it up on video next week. <laughs> because that's what we need, and it's not in the budget. And so uh, to, to be able to go and, and do video right in this room. So uh, we would love to get there. I think it's a wonderful, how many of you think video is a wonderful suggestion? Just hold your hands up, keep holding your hands up. Reach down right now, touch your wallet. Do you feel, are you getting a great big lump in your wallet right now? It just, it's just uh, anyways. Uh, for right now, it's, it's on audio. Go to the website, go to messages, you'll find it there. It's on audio and it goes up on Thursday. So if you're, if you're there tonight, click and go on why isn't it up yet? It's Thursday. It goes up, so uh, you should be able to you should be able to to listen uh, to the audio there. And I do I do look forward to the day when this room is completely. We've done a lot, and it's it's come a long, long way. Isn't this a great room? I just love this room for teaching. Uh, we we still have a few things left, and so uh, we'll get we'll get there. Um, I think we've got some lights, so you can see to make a few notes if you need to. And wow, what a great crowd tonight! Uh, bigger than last week. And this is awesome. This is awesome. Do you know how weird you are? Uh, strange, strange people to be in church on a Wednesday night actually studying your Bibles. Who would have thought it in America in these days? Praise the Lord, the God Almighty. So let's begin. There are two parts, two parts to the introduction of Judges. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, gives an overview of uh, the failed partial invasion, the failure to take possession of the land. Chapter 2 and following fills in all of the blanks where 1-1 through 2-5 gives you kind of an overview that sets everything up. 2-6 takes you back to the beginning of the story and then develops the stories within the story along the way. So you need to see whenever you're reading this and you say, well, I feel like I just kind of read something like that. 1-1 one, one through 2-5 is an overview because remember, this is being written years later from the oral traditions that have been passed down. And so you're given an overview like I just gave you, not the whole thing, but an overview of the invasion of the land. And then you're given the storyline. So that's how it falls together. So we're going to start in 1-1 and work our way through the first chapter and a little bit. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. That's good, isn't it? That's the best part of Judges right there. You have just, smile right now because you have just hit their high, bright, and shining moment. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Hot stuff. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him and Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and he defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. 
They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Iman and Talmai. These are Anakin, by the way, and they go all the way back, or I should say, out of their descendants. Eventually will come a giant named Goliath from the Anakin, okay? So anyways, there's a little bit of history there. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir was former Kiriath Sefter. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefter and captures it, I will give him Asha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kinez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Asha, his daughter, as a wife. And she came to him. She urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite. Now, we're, these are different sections of the story, okay? And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Ered. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon and his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapheth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ascalon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out the three sons of Anak. Then the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, to this day is to the day that we believe Samuel is writing the history. The death of Joshua, the death of Joshua leaves a void in leadership in Israel. And whenever there's a void in leadership, you have a situation that is tailor-made for chaos. And that is exactly what ensues with the children of Israel in their 12 very independent tribes, actually 13, um, 11 tribes and then two half, uh, Manasseh and, e and Ephraim. So they've got all of, these, all of these different power centers without a unified leader. What are you going to get out of that? What are you going to get? You are not going to get, somebody has to be in charge, right? You had Moses and Joshua, but they were transitory leaders. They were chosen by God for, for one purpose, and that was to get the children of Israel to the land that he promised them. 
Moses handled the exit, and then he bumbled it, and God said, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. So Joshua was raised up by the hand of God. You have Moses who provides the exit, and you've got Joshua who provides for the entrance into the land. But when Joshua uh, goes off of the, the radar, when he dies, no one is chosen. Now, this doesn't tell us that God would not have blessed a singular leader who rose up. It's not saying that. Rather, I think it indicates that the tribes were already so factionalized that no one appears on the horizon where the people say, you know, he's a man of valor like Joshua or like Moses. We need to have him lead us all. That no one appears on the horizon. It just tells us that they're somewhat factionalized. Idolatrous practices had been uh, or had not been completely eradicated even among the children of Israel. We find that some of them, just in some notes along the side here in Joshua, we find that some of them had still brought gods with them out of Egypt. How did they escape getting swallowed up in the wilderness or smoked, you know, by God sending down fire like he did? How did some of these people escape still holding on to the gods of Egypt, which would have been passed down to their children? And some of them had even been involved in idolatry along the way, so idolatrous practices hadn't been completely wiped out because Joshua, in his last, very last charge to the people at the end of the book of Joshua, he urges the people, put away your gods from beyond the river and from Egypt. So it was still a problem, and idolatry would be a problem for Israel all the way up into about 500 B.C., into the exile. And once the people were exiled, it took it took them losing their land and being exiled as prisoners and as, as, um, as people without a land for 70 years for them to give up on idolatry. And idolatry did not become a big thing again after they come back to the land. But up until then, it was, a, it was a huge problem, huge problem for them. More than once in Judges, the times are described as chaotic. And you heard it in the intro, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Welcome to our world. Nobody has the right to tell me what is right and wrong. I have my truth. I have your, you have your truth. I do what is right for me. You do what is right for you. And as long as we don't uh, hurt one another, then that'll just be okay. Not working real well, but that's the culture. That's the day that we are living in. When it, whenever you have a culture that does not believe that there is an absolute right, an absolute wrong, does not believe that there is a God, a moral lawgiver who gives a moral law, then morality comes down to everyone doing what is right where? In their own eyes. And the end result is chaos, absolute chaos. Enter the wonderful world of American politics. So let's get a geographical point of reference for our reading, okay? So I'm, we're pulling a slide up here, and what this is going to give us is just kind of a little bit of an understanding of, um, of what's going on. So I'll just point out some things. The children of Israel come up through Moab and Reuben. Uh, you know, well, it's Reuben and Gad, but this is, this is all Moab and Ammon. They come up through Moab and Ammon, and they invade the land of Israel this way. If you've ever had it in your mind that, no, they come up from Egypt and they, they go to the promised land. No, 
the, the scripture tells us they had to take this roundabout route through this wilderness and then ultimately up through, up through this region until they cross over and the first city they run into is in Jericho. And from Jericho then, they're not far removed from Jerusalem and Bethel and Shiloh. And this center region, this is really where the life of Israel takes place in these, in these early years. And what we're going to see, these blue arrows show us the first phases of their, um, of their engagement and of their conquering of the land. Judah was chosen. When the people sought the Lord, he answered, Judah will go up, strike the first blow in conquest in the hill country. And they began to engage in battle. It expanded first, it expanded first to the north. So they come in here and it expands up this way. Then later, we're going to see it comes down here into the hill country, into the Negev, and then out to the plains. This is modern-day Gaza. This is the Gaza Strip. This, when the Bible talks about the plains, it's literally talking about the land we know today as Gaza Strip. So it's, it's flat all the way out through here. Warfare is completely different out there than warfare that you fight here in all of this hilly region. And so Old Testament, New Testament, an awful lot of your Old Testament and your New Testament takes place in this little chunk of geography right here. You can ride from the north to the south. You can ride in, a, in about three hours on a tour bus from the north to the south, and most of your Bible happened right there. So just kind of gives you an understanding of what it's like when you go to Israel, what it's like when you actually walk in that geography and begin to put it all Together, you begin to connect with, I'm not selling a tour tonight, but you begin to connect with the Bible on a different level. Even if you'll go over and you'll think, oh, this isn't going to change me. You can be a cynic and you can go over. I promise you at the end of day one, your eyes will be open this much. Your, your jaw will be on your chest most of the time. We'll close your mouth every once in a while so you won't draw flies. But you will, you will live with a, with a sense of awe and wonder that you've never had before because all of a sudden you're standing there saying, I I am within 30 feet radius of that geographical center where God called down fire. Elijah called down fire on Mount Carmel, which is Mount Carmel is up here in the north. See where Megiddo is at the very top where that eight is here in the hill country. Uh, just from Megiddo, just go a little bit north and Mount Carmel's right there. So it's all, it's all very, very, very compact. So we, we need to look at the topography too, because a lot of people don't see this and they should. Let's bring up the next one. Yeah. This is Israel also. Did you know it was shaped like this? Do you guys mind if I just go into this a little bit? Because this is just fun stuff for me. This is where I need a, a, a stick. Teacher, let me show you. Yeah, um, anyways, this is, the, this is the lay of the land. Now, the geographical feature that is fascinating in all of this is the Great Rift. If you look up north of Hazar, or Hazor, which is, here's the Sea of Galilee. There's a small body of water just north of it. And that indentation, that is where the Great Rift starts. It flows all the way down through Israel into the Dead Sea, the lowest you know, the lowest elevation on the face of the earth, comes out the other side of the Dead Sea, continues in an indentation all the way to the Red Sea. It goes under the Red Sea, this great rift, appears, pops up in Africa, goes all the way down Africa, all the way to Mozambique. It starts right here. 
it, it's interesting, isn't it? That the Bible says that in the, in the last of the last days, when, when Jesus comes, his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. And what's going to happen? It's going to be rent apart. It's going to be split in two. And the greatest fault in all of the world is right here in the neighborhood. Isn't that cool? I just like stuff like that. Sorry. So thanks for just... Yeah. I love looking at the topography, though. Because when you read the stories of the Bible and you read them on a flat plane, you don't understand what's going on. You, you need to understand certain things when you're studying your Bible. And I, I know I'm getting off my notes, and this is really bad, really bad, bad. But anyways, you, you, need, to, you need to understand some things. You, when, when it comes to warfare, if you've got chariots, if you've got chariots, you can only fight those chariots on flat plains. So those battles, any battles where there were chariots, you'll find that they are either fought out here on the Gaza coast where you've got Ekron and Ascalon and, and all of those cities. It's all fought out here in the flat country or right up here on this ridge. Here's Mount Carmel right about here. Here's Megiddo. You've got, uh, this is uh, Mount Gilboa and you've got Mount Tabor right here and Nazareth is right up here and here in the, in the hill country. So you've got a valley that runs all the way through here and it's a huge flat valley, the, the valley of, of um, Jezreel. Also, people, at, people have identified it as, as uh, the sighting for Armageddon, although scholars go back and forth about that. But it's a natural battlefield, and so you'll see chariot battles up there. So anywhere in, in the scripture where you've got chariots that are going everywhere, it's, it's generally in these two battlefields that, that we can easily identify. How come that one's brighter than that? Okay. Anyways... I just wanted to keep James up all night tonight. So Judah fights, Judah fights in the hill country. Most of David's battles take place. Can we go back? Yeah. Most, <laughs> be nice, James. <laughs> Most of David's battles take place right through here. Here's Hebron. Here's the wilderness area down in here, but that's not where David hid. They found him at, at En Gede. Remember En Gedi? That's right over here near Jericho, actually right down about here, down near Masada. So it's right here on the coast of the Dead Sea, but places that, that David could hide. So David would hide in this area and then down in this area. But this is, this is David's fighting ground. And when you read later, when you read King David and he's, he's out running around in, in the wilderness, Open up your Bible atlas and find out where he is. Because it's just, it, 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 brings, it, it brings it to life. Okay. So Judah fights in the, in the vicinity of the hill country to the north. And so can we bring up the former map? They go north. And so their invasion point is right in here. They come into Ai. Remember they had a problem in Ai? Bethel becomes the religious center so we, can, we imagine that this meeting, wherever it's decided by God that they're going to go fight, Judah will go up first. They're starting about here, and they've got a problem with a guy named Adonai Bezek and the Canaanites that follow him. And so they trace him all the way up to his city kingdom. It's a, it's a city called Bezek, and that's where, that's where the fight uh, first uh, is... is uh, engaged. From there, they go south to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, they go south to the Negev. From the Negev, they go to, to the Philistines. So this is just a great big overview. Keller, who has written an excellent, just an excellent commentary on, on judges, 
talks about their experienced success being a limited success. He says, the narrative itself shows us that Israel at this point is faithful but flawed. The foundations are being laid, and though they are strong in part, they begin to erode almost from the outset. Do you remember last week I showed you that, that kind of that history line of, of Israel on a line? You know, up, they were up and they were down and they were up and they were down and we get to the judges and they're, they're like this, downward spiral. That's exactly what Keller is saying. They, they started out okay, but with flaws and quickly they, they fell off from there and re, really made a mess of things. Chapter one in J- Judges tracks their successes and otherwise of of nine total tribes of Israel. Most of the focus in chapter one falls on Judah, since God says they're going to be the first to complete their conquest of their allotted territory. But almost immediately, and we run right by this, almost immediately, Judah fails. Then the men of Judah said to to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us to fight. This makes common sense militarily, but it is faithlessness, spiritually, God told Judah, you go up. Judah said, first thing we're going to do is we're going to form an alliance. Rather than depend on the promise of God that when you go in obedience to me, in the power of the Spirit, you will drive out the enemy, they took out an insurance policy. We're going, but we're taking our brother here, Simeon was born of the same mother as, as Judah. And so they are, they are really close tribes. So I'm taking my brother with me. Judah fails to fully obey. They go, but they don't go alone. It's a halfway discipleship. Scholars agree that Israel's obedience is only a partial obedience. Everywhere we look, we see the same theme cropping up. Uh, this, from, um, this from Barry Webb, uh, Dr. Barry Webb, who wrote the uh, New International Commentary in the Old Testament series uh, for Judges. It was, it's, it's outstanding. He said, the opening chapters of the book tell us that after Joshua's death, the Israelites tried to occupy all the territories that had been assigned to them, but they did not succeed in doing it completely or to God's satisfaction. As a result, this is important, as a result, they ended up immersed in Canaanite culture with dire consequences. The rest of the book shows the progressive canonization of Israel. Canonization of Israel. Israel was supposed to show God to the world. And because they didn't obey God completely, the world began to change the face of Israel. God wanted a separate people. A people who were, this is his design, a people who were separate geographically, culturally, and spiritually. This is God's call to Abraham. Leave your home country, leave your people, leave, leave, leave it all, Abraham, because I'm going to make you a singular nation. I'm going to, and through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, the whole Old Testament, and I wish I'd understood this my first 10 years in ministry, I didn't listen in a class or something because I missed it. I missed it. It took me a long time to catch up. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You got a school, you got a job, you were an expert in about, you know, three years, and then you found out how much you didn't know. I knew far more 
the first three years of ministry than I know right now. I was convinced I knew a lot more then. Now I've just had to unlearn about half of it. And, and uh, well, no, I'm sorry. It's about 75% now is completely unlearned. But um, the Old Testament is built around a model in which God raises up a nation and then like a magnet because of their righteousness. See, the nation becomes righteous. They obey the Lord. And what follows, obedi- what follows obedience? Blessing. And the blessings of God just keep falling down on them until, I mean, they are covered and coated and sticky with God's blessings. And all the nations look to Israel and say, what is it that they're doing? And the nations are drawn to them. This was God's design. This was God's plan. The New Testament is built around a different model altogether in which God does not build up a, uh, a nation. He builds a kingdom a spiritual kingdom, and we carry that kingdom in our hearts. And we don't build up a nation where everybody comes to us. If you build it, they will come. What did Jesus say? Go into all all the world and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. So Old Testament, you've got you know, the blessing of God falls on obedience and everybody just gets sucked into, we want to go see what's going on there. That was the plan. Israel failed in the plan desperately. So God said, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send a full revelation now of who I am. He will empower the people. And rather than trying to draw people in, they will literally take my kingdom to the far reaches of the world and advance the cause of the kingdom. It's totally different. The Old Testament mission is centripetal. 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 You understand what centripetal is? If, um, if I take a ball and I put it on a, on a string, can we pull up that next slide? Yeah. If I take a ball on a, on a string and I begin to swing it around, the ball will feel the pressure of me holding it. And the harder I swing, there's a force, there's a force that's, that is, is exerted that holds that ball. What happens if the, if the ball slips off the string? Right, it's gone. There are two forces at work. One is centripetal. I'm swinging that thing around, and, and actually, then I just keep, I keep winding the string around my finger. I'm pulling it in. I'm pulling. That's centripetal. That's centripetal or centripetal. Centripetal. You got it? Everybody say it with me. Centripetal. Okay, that's centripetal power. And this is, I love this, this uh, painting. What this was, it was paint that was put onto somewhat of a, uh, of a spinner to come up with a, an artist's kind of a trendy rendition of what he thought a black hole would be like. What's a black hole in space? It's antimatter, right? And it sucks in and crushes everything. So <sighs> did not make it through chemistry or physics. So you can just take, take it for what it's worth. Some of you right now could probably correct me and, and just shut up, okay? So just <laughs> leave me alone. I'm doing the best I can. So this is, this is the black hole, and the black hole just, just sucks in everything. Old Testament. You got the Old Testament? I don't, I, I don't want to say Old Testament, black hole. That, that just doesn't sing, does it? But, but it does put an image in your mind. You see, it does put an image in your mind. Can you, imagine, can you imagine a people who had risen up and obeyed God perfectly? And look at the times God did bless Israel. Imagine if they had walked 
in continual blessing. Imagine what would have happened as the nations of the earth. I mean, Solomon came closest to seeing the blessing of God in his wisdom in his early years, seeing the blessing of God make Israel such a force in the world that nations came from everywhere. They came from Egypt. They came, they came from everywhere to hear what? The wisdom of Solomon. Who gave him that wisdom? It was God's wisdom. So they were drawn to the blessing. So we see this is, that's, that's, old, that's Old Testament. The New Testament, let's go to the next one. Here's the New Testament. The new, you, put your, you put everything in the, in, the, in the washer and you've got it spinning around and you've got that rinse cycle and then spin. I love that spin cycle. Because, man, that, that thing really goes. I like speed. I like speed. You know, if, if I don't drive fast anymore, I just go in and I wash the washer work. <laughs> I do. I do. You're laughing at me right now, Philip Jefferson, but I have to tell you, the day's coming when you'll be fascinated by these things, okay? Yeah, it's amazing how senility manifests itself. So, no, but you put, you put these clothes in there and it goes faster and faster and faster. What happens to the clothes? They're out to the side, but that's not what's happening. It's not about the clothes. You know what it's all about? The water. This thing is built so that all the water is sucked, completely sucked out. And so there is a force on the outside that is pulling it. New Testament. I'll fill you with my spirit, and then I'm going to send you out to the world. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? God just hit the switch. Yeah, it's time for spin dry. <laughs> you know, you've got wet now. You've been baptized. You got really wet now, and the spin dry, boom, sending you out in the world. So I'm, I'm being frivolous with these things, but I want you to understand, I was in the ministry for years before I grasped this simple truth, and once I grasped this simple truth, there were huge segments of Scripture in the Old Testament that suddenly made sense to me. Well, why would God do that, and why would God do that? What was God's ultimate objective in the Old Testament? To raise up a nation that would make his name great in the earth. A nation. New Testament, what is God doing? He has established in his Son now in us a spiritual kingdom. And he's just doing it in a different way in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The thing that is consistent in the New and in the Old is grace. Children of Israel would have never made it to the promised land if it weren't for grace. Every page of the Old Testament is coded in grace. The judges, the, what, what happens in judges? Every time the people really mess up and they cry out to God, what does God give them? He gives them grace. And he raises up a judge. Don't get caught up in this thing. Well, the Old Testament's all about law. You have to, un and the New Testament's all about grace. It's all about grace from the very beginning. It's grace. God is grace to us. So you know, grapple with that. So we're watching in Judges the building of a people, nation, through whom God wants to bless the world. And we're in the infancy of its birthing right now in Judges. But in Judges, the geographical necessities were compromised by a halfway commitment. And then the culture was corrupted by multiculturalism. And the spiritual holiness that God demanded of the people was compromised by idolatry. I think it's on the next slide. Do we have a next slide? Yep. Okay. Geographical necessities were compromised. So... They were supposed to possess that land. It was supposed to be a kingdom, nation, like no other. And it was supposed to be unpolluted 
by all of these other cultures. That's what it was supposed to be. But they never, they never really, they never really drove out the enemies. Two, their culture was corrupted by multiculturalism. They were supposed to be a single culture, a single culture, a single people, and holiness was completely compromised because of this multiculturalism brought with it a form of idolatry that polluted the souls of the people and drew them away from the living God. So, Judah, we read about it in the first chapter, defeats a king named Adonai Bezek at a place called Bezek. Now, Adonai Bezek means literally Lord of Bezek. His name was probably Hank. <laughs> Bill, Ben, Moshe, I don't know. But because he had become the ruler of Bezek, he's recorded in Scripture as Adonai, which means Lord, Lord of Bezek. Now, when Bezek falls, rather than surrender, when the cause is lost, he decides he's going to escape, and they caught him. And when they caught him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes why did they do that? Well, they did that so he would never again wield a sword and he would never again run away. Adonai Bezek blithely observes that this is just because he's been a cruel dude. He said, seeing that I have had 70 kings. Now, these kings weren't kings of big kingdoms. These kings would have been tribal chieftains in his region. We know that, that this guy, Adonai Bezek, we know that he was powerful through the region of the land all the way from Jerusalem up north to Bezek, almost, almost to the valley of Jezreel. So he was, a, he was a very powerful man. And he had conquered all of these other smaller kingdoms. And when he conquered these small city kingdoms and these smaller tribes, he cut off the thumbs and the toes of 70 of these leaders and put them in a humiliating place where they basically ate the scraps from his banquet table. And so he says, that's the way I treated people. So that's my chickens coming home to roost. Anyone believe that you reap what you sow? Oh, by the way, God did not command the people, cut off those fingers and those, those thumbs and, and toes. God didn't say anything about this. Understand this. Every time you read about what the children of Israel did, you cannot immediately assume God told them to do that. Their, their obedience is deeply flawed. We'll see it everywhere we look. See, in a subtle sense, we look at this story and it becomes far more apparent as the history unfolds. No matter where Israel goes and no matter who they conquer, they adopt the ways of their enemies. They adopt the ways of their enemies rather than uh, defeat their enemies and then, you know, treat them humanely. If, you know, if, if it wasn't a drive out situation or if God didn't say put them to the sword, rather than take them captive or uh, or, or take them e even in prison, but you, you would treat them in a certain... No, no. What they did is wherever they went, they reflected the culture that they were in. You know, in this political 
scene that we're living in right now, you ever get tempted to just fight dirty? You ever get drawn into where, you know, those lousy Democrats, so you're going to hit them with this, or those, those Republicans, and so you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna strike. Have you look at, just, just look on Facebook. Everything comes down to living at the lowest possible denominator. Because when we don't guard our hearts, what do we do? We begin to reflect the attitudes of our enemies. Got to keep a pure heart before God. You should just be thankful. There are so many things I don't say. I want my heart to be pure before God. I, I want my heart to be pure before God. Well, the, the scene switches now in the text, and they take uh, Adonai Bezek down to Jerusalem. So they take him captive, and they take him along. And they take him all the way down to Jerusalem where they fight against Jerusalem. They burn it, but it's interesting. They didn't possess the city. So they win the battle, and it's a knockout punch. And they burn, we don't know how much, but they, they burn the city. They show themselves more powerful, but they do not remove the Jebusites. Because who is it that finally conquers the Jebusites and throws them out of Jerusalem? David. So here again, you see, they were given a mandate. Here's what you're supposed to do. And they went halfway. It's almost like, you know, they hit the Jebusites with everything they've got. And the Jebusites were down. The Jebusites were out. And Judah went on to fight some other battles. And the Jebusites picked themselves up, got the walls back in shape, cleaned up the mess, and nothing had really changed. So the Jebusites are found there until the days of David, so it's a half-done job. Then the scene shifts to the south, and uh, pull up the map again, yeah. So now we've come all the way back down to Jerusalem, where they've won the battle there, but they haven't really possessed the city. And now the fight goes south. This stuff's all happened up in the north. Now everything goes south, down here towards the Negev, down towards the, the desert. And this is kind of phase two under Judah, who had been given a massive, a massive amount of land. And it's the story of Caleb. Caleb was who? He was the one remaining spy, right? Everyone else is dead. Only Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land, and we know Joshua's dead now. So you've got Caleb. He is the surviving elder. And so you've got Caleb, and, and you have his, his daughter, Asa, and then Othniel, and as best we can figure it out, he is a nephew of Caleb. Caleb offers an incentive to his tribal leaders, you know, that his, his fighting force. He offers an incentive to this amalgamated army. He says, whoever takes the city of Debir gets my daughter. Now, I don't know about you, but that just does not sound like a love story to me. You know, bring her home like a deer on the hood, son. I mean, you know, where'd you get her? I want her at a poker game. You know, I just, she's mine. Can, it looks like love. Can you imagine such a thing? Are you there? Are you with me? 
Okay, you're paying attention tonight. I, you might not be getting a thing, but you're at least paying attention. So I'm going to live with it. I love that. So anyways, um, does this sound like a godly thing? Whoever takes the city gets the girl. Uh, it's something, by the way, that crops up again in the scripture in some other places. And what this does to us, it introduces to us, as, as Samuel is telling us the history, it introduces us to Othniel, who is the first judge. And his story will come up, but because I'm going so slow, it's not going to come up tonight. Here's the first part of it, though. The nephew, Othniel, takes the city and the girl, and the girl is shrewd, really shrewd. So she, she already gets a dowry of the Negev. So it must be that Debir was of huge consequence. And when Othniel comes here and he conquers Debir, Caleb says, okay, I'm going to give you the Negev. And I mean, that's, that's quite a dowry. So he's already a powerful man. And he's got a new wife. And yet the story tells us this, this, there's just a little bit of insight here into the shrewdness of women. And I don't say that facetiously at all. I mean, there are some wise women. There are some women that pop up here in the story in Judges that make some of you guys sleep with one eye open. Anyways, uh, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> you know, if Sherry's been reading Judges, I sleep in the other room. You know what I'm talking about. Anyways, from, um, you know, from De Beer. All of this area is given as a dowry, but she goes to her father, and before she is given, before the deal is finally struck, we've got this strange situation where she appears before her father, and she, her husband-to-be, the deal's not done yet, her husband-to-be, she goads him, says, ask him for something. Ask him for, and she's behind all of it. What does she want? I want the springs. I want the springs. She is shrewd enough to know that land is worthless unless we have access to water sources. And, and she, gets, she gets two springs, probably in the Beersheba area. There's, there's still quite a bit of water here. She gets what they call the upper and the lower springs. We don't know exactly where they were. But she gets the upper and the lower springs. And uh, why her story is put in there aside to show her shrewdness, not really sure. But um, she's there, and so we need, to, we need to honor her. She did a good, bit, a good bit of business that day. But don't miss this. The people should have taken the land out of obedience to the word of God alone. Why did Caleb have to offer a trophy? I can't prove it, but due to the later story in Judges, I wonder if this also was not a common practice adopted by the nations that surrounded them. I wonder if this, this has to have a history. Or it might be that the invasion had produced a weariness wherein at this point Caleb just thought, my men, to go on fighting, my men just need an added incentive. But whatever it was, it was something less than trusting the God of Israel to expel the enemy. And so they end up with another kind of a halfway cleansing um, no matter the case, we're going to leave Othniel for a little bit. And the next group, and I'll hit this next group and we'll stop there. But the next group are the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, who out in the wilderness came to Moses and said, 
uh, Moses, uh, we're going home. And Moses has this conversation with them saying, you know, I need you to hang with me. We're going into an area where you know how to dwell in the wilderness. I need you to go with me. And so the Kenites, his father-in-law's tribe, they go with Moses into the promised land, and they are also honored here, uh, given a part of the fight and a part of the land. And so we're told about the Kenites who are embedded with Israel from Moses through the Exodus. And it seems they have tribal connections across these southern borderlands in the wilderness. Whatever the case may be, they're listed as allies. Later on, a Kenite woman named Jael, J-A-E-L. Um, she's going to have a significant role, a pretty violent role to play. She's the one who takes the stake and through the head of uh, Sisera. So uh, all of these stories are setting up the stories to come. We know about Othniel, who's going to be the first judge. Now we get a little vignette that tells us about the Kenites, so we'll understand who Jael is and be able to put her in a proper context. The campaign then turns to the plains, and we'll have to stop there because I can't get through three pages in two minutes. So um, I'm a little behind where I wanted to be tonight, but are you okay? All right. Um, let me just open up for just a, a few questions because we've thrown a bunch of context and geography at you. So anybody have a question real quick? <laughs> 